Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. The amazing spider talk, the amazing spider talk, come swing through the air, sit back and prepare for the Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, but the annuals, they don't count. Well, welcome everybody to the Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks for joining us for this review episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. Are we all new? It seems like forever since we had some all new content to talk about, but we got we got double duty today. We're going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 44, Legacy 845, which is written by Nick Spencer with art by Kim Jacinto and Bruno Oliveria. Colors by David Curiel, letters by VCs Joe Caramanga. This issue was first released on July 15th, 2020. And then we'll be discussing Amazing Spider-Man Sins Rising Prelude Number 1. There's a title. Is there going to be a number two? No, but it's still a number one. So go get it, everybody. This one is written by Nick Spencer, art by Guillermo Santa, colors by Jordi Belair, and letters by also by VCs Joe Caramagna. Man, VC just owns that guy. Lots, lots of new comics, Mark. You know, could they pace these a little bit better? So that last one was July 15th. This one was July 22nd. It's like, boom, boom, boom. We didn't have Spider-Man comics for two months. And now we got... We got another one next week, yeah, I think. We got, so, we I got, mean, what, what, what are we going to do? We got 45 next week. I was going to say to your first question about prelude number one, I mean, would you rather it be Alpha and Omega or uh, <laughs> or or Sin's, Sin's prelude beta? Well, if this is Sin's rising when it's over, is it Sin's past? Whoa, oh. we're going there. Oh. What's Okay, well, let's talk about it, Mark. Amazing Spider-Man number 44. Last episode when we did a review, we were talking about this as if like, hey, at the end it said, you know, to be continued. And we didn't know if it was meant the story was going to be continued about the Lifeline Tablet Saga or if like just in general, Spider-Man wasn't stopping, which seems like a pretty safe bet. And I guess it turns out that it meant Spider-Man's not going anywhere. Thank you, COVID-19. Uh, we are actually not continuing the story of the Lifeline Tablet saga. Mark, I think that's pretty stupid. Yeah, I mean, not that I necessarily wanted more Lifeline Tablet. I mean, the fact of the matter is, like, this book, for the better part of, I mean, and 
it's even further extended by the pandemic. I mean, what now we're going on two years now. It's just felt like just totally spinning its wheels and not getting anywhere. So it's like, okay, so now we went on this lifeline tablet journey that felt very inconclusive. <laughs> That's great. And now I, we, we, we seem to be all systems ago on this kind of kindred slash sin eater saga, which is clearly intertwined right now, which we'll get into in a moment. I still feel like we're kind of tap dancing on the circumference of what we what we as readers, I think, I don't even know if we want it anymore, but like at some point they have to give us it, right? I mean, it's just like, it's got to come soon, right? I mean, but we're still, we're still... I think it was like, we thought issue 25 might be it. And then as soon as it wasn't it, it was like, well, get ready to wait to issue 50. Because like that, all intents and purposes, it seems to be that. Except that they just did the solicits for issue 50, and it seems like it's a Green Goblin story. So, what? We'll find out, I guess. I mean, hey, maybe maybe issue 100, man. Let's just keep going. Let's just keep pushing. Like, I mean, you know, it's kind of, again, it, 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 everything just feels like the pandemic right now, you know? Like, hey, if we could just shut down for four more weeks, <laughs> we'll get kindred. Well, no, make that eight <laughs> more weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. In an alternate what if universe, we've discovered who Kindred is by now. Maybe not. Probably not. We'll never find out who Kindred is. I just thought like, man, to have like the recap page here say like that the Lifeline tablet is safe for now was really upsetting. I mean, I don't know if whether the for now made it more upsetting <laughs> because that promised that it's going to return. And it's not that I don't like the Lifeline tablet, but like literally two free comic book days ago and this free comic book day got canceled, delayed. And then the new free comic book day issue came out like this week, which I thought was actually pretty good. We're not going to talk about it here, but uh, cause Mark, you haven't been able to get a hold yeah, of it yet. I can't find the it. The thing about it is that's where this storyline was started two free comic book days ago. And it just kind of got buried underneath Peter getting pet Gog, which isn't continued here. Like where isn't Gog sleeping at the end of Peter's bed? Apparently not. Um, all right. Issue 44. Let's actually talk about the content of this issue. And Mark, I don't think there's really any way to talk about the content of this issue without going, what the hell is going on here in like, I think a not good way. I think we got to talk about the structure of this. Yeah, book. I would say the structure, it, it, it's kind of like Inception, but weirder because it's like we got dreams within dreams and nightmares within nightmares. And even just like the whole issue of where in time are these things happening? I got to be honest, like even even the stuff early with Overdrive, I was like, wait, is this like a flashback? Is this happening? Is this post Gog the pet lifeline tablet like it wasn't very clear to me I mean was am I am I just being dense in how I read this Dan Mark it's just that you're not looking at it right it's not about whether the top falls over or not <laughs> it's that he didn't look back he just accepted his reality no that we're talking about inception which actually turned 10 years uh old this week <laughs> anyway uh no Mark it's really hard to kind of like Fair it out. And whether that's intentional or not, it makes for a pretty frustrating read. And I think the reason it's so frustrating is half of it seems like real events that happened. And so I leave this book going, 
I don't know if this is canon or not. Like, did Peter have like a late night monologue where he called MJ did overdrive and these guys get torn to pieces by sin demons? I don't know if it's all a dream. Did it not happen? It seems pretty plausibly that it happened. And so it took like, I reread this thing like four times and I think I know what's happening, Mark. And I can spell it out if you're interested. I'm not trying to be a jerk here, Dan. I mean, but yeah, I mean, what's the synopsis here? Because it's just, I mean, I know what happened, but what, what, what what did like, what's real and what's not. It's very like, it shouldn't take like, look, no offense to Nick Spencer, but you're not Alan Moore. Like, it shouldn't take me this much work to figure out what's going on in a Spider-Man comic. I'm sorry. It just shouldn't. Well, it's funny you say that because I actually think that the issue we're going to talk about next, the Sins Rising issue, handles a similar kind of idea, but really well, right? Like, it's doing this kind of, like, fractured narrative. We're in someone's untrustworthy mind. And I totally understood what it was going for there. Whereas here, I'm like... I really don't know. So here's what I think is happening, Mark. And feel free to jump in if you're like, Dan, that doesn't seem right because I'm not even sure. But I think like on the highest level of this, it's Kindred putting a vision into Madam Webb's head and showing her a number of things, right? And Madam Webb, she's the prognosticator of all prognosticators. Move aside, Puxatani Phil. We got Madam Web here. She's seeing the future and spoiling upcoming comic books. And so she's seeing a mixed variety of visions of things. So like, I think the first thing she sees is a real moment that actually happened with Overdrive, which was set up in a previous issue, right? Where Overdrive and the inner demons killed these cops and Overdrive tried to get them to stop, right? And so you've got the Sin Eater chasing them down and he like conjures up this like carnage looking demon, you know, from the sins of these inner demons who can't be killed. And this is them finally getting killed by their sins, which is kind of cool. And he's like begging Overdrive to like confess and like, you know, ask for absolution and Overdrive refuses get, you know, uses his really cool dollar bill airplane, which I thought was a really cool twist and like gets in a car and just hightails it out of air and drive for several days straight trying to escape the Michael Myers sin eater who just seems to appear everywhere. And I think that actually happened, right? Leading to, I think, ultimately overdrives death. That, that, that is my thing. Spider-Man was not in the backseat of the car. But what we're seeing is Peter having a real nightmare in his apartment of being in the backseat of this car with overdrive that Kindred has incepted into his mind. And he wakes up in a cold sweat and calls MJ about these nightmares and has a great monologue, which we can talk about later. And then, you know, is talking about the marriage. Now, I don't know how that scene actually resolves itself because in the in that scene, he like dies and Kindred buries him under the earth. I think at that point, it goes back to being a premonition nightmare that is being seen by Madam Webb, and she is ultimately sharing through the dreams of all these other spider people through the web of life. That is what I think is happening. It took four or five readings, like I said, but I think that's what's happening in this issue. Does that sound plausible? I mean, that sounds plausible. I mean, with that said, I mean, you know, 
<laughs> what what did we think of all that? I mean, well, let's let's focus on some of the good. The voicemail or answering machine message or whatever it is to Mary Jane. I thought, you know, this was a strong scene because we're getting we're getting some Peter here that we don't we have not gotten with a lot of consistency over the course of this run, right? I think it's a really like, I mean, when, when he writes Peter, he does a great job of it. I mean, there's no doubt that Nick Spencer can write a really effective Peter Parker. And I think, you know, it's nice to see it pick up on the Jameson podcast stuff, right? Because we, we talked about that, like how we were kind of disappointed that that didn't get resolved in a way. And I'm glad it wasn't forgotten, right? Like that, that him admitting to pushing people away is something that has stayed with him. And I thought it was a, a you know, at least a consistent good characterization of the character here. And I, I thought like him coming clean to MJ about needing a reason to take the mask off and relieve himself, I think is a good thing. I just think the trouble with it is he tells this story about leaving the house with his mask on and getting caught up in the spider of it all, which we saw, I guess, in the 90s comics where he was doing that. But like this is the textbook example of telling rather than showing. Instead of having Peter tell this story, I mean, why not show him doing it? I agree with that. I mean, just to kind of jump back a second here with this monologue to MJ, I do I, I do want to add like and maybe this is me being a little rose rose colored glasses here. But like despite how kind of convoluted the whole relationship with MJ has been since they've been reunited. I mean, we've even talked like, is is even this a dream? You know, because like Peter himself over the span of the last few years has kept saying, this feels like a dream. This feels like a dream. And given everything that we're having with Kindred, maybe it is. But I feel like scenes like this do bring forth this idea that Mary Jane is different than the rest in terms of that she is a person. Rea- reality aside, Peter feels that he can bear a part of his soul to that he can't with anyone else. And I like that that kind of comes through here. Like, because you don't, you know, you don't normally get Peter coming forward to someone like this before. Yet with Mary Jane, it, it feels authentic and sincere. It doesn't feel like, you know, like he's just trying to have a moment. Like, it's like, okay, no, like this is this is the one person he truly, truly trusts above anyone else. Right. I think that's a really good point. Now you've got my wheels spinning about this. It's all a dream thing, which we all know, like short of Dallas, it's probably the worst twist you could pull in a narrative. Right. Unless it's really cool. You'd have to really convince me. But now I'm starting to think now that you said that just now it's occurring to me, like that whole like weird third person um, omniscient narrator voice that we've got for Peter this whole time. Like maybe there is something to that. Maybe there is a clue in that. You know, I've been kind of knocking Spencer for it because I think it's weird that Peter knows about things he's not present for. But that's kind of how dreams work. You know, that maybe there's something there, Mark. Am I now just like grabbing at things? <laughs> I don't know if you're grabbing, but I mean, like the mainstay consistencies that we have been getting over the course of this run, besides, you know, are callbacks to Captain Stacy's death. That's the first. And then the other is this idea of dreams. I mean, like we've been, you know, like Peter keeps talking about things being like a dream or we get issues like this, which are dreams within dreams within dreams, because we've had other issues like that where, you know, I mean, like we had that even during the Craven story where Peter was having these dreamlike premonitions of MJ in, in, in distress. 
which, you know, not exactly true. But like, so clearly dreams are a thing. It's not even a Chekhovian gun. Like, you know, like this is this is this is being very blatantly put in front of us, as is, I think, at this point, the lookout. How are these two things going to merge at some point? I just don't know. I don't know either. I mean, I, I know that Nick Spencer knows. I don't know that he's communicating it in the best and most intriguing way. Like, I think whether that be because of editorial or whatever, like I just kind of need it to happen now. It's the kind of thing I I wonder how good the twist is going to be that we can look back on these things and it will make coherent sense. And the dream angle is one I, I so I, I teach film to kids for my, my day job. And I had to put a moratorium in my class on films they make of it was all a dream or someone was their secret lost brother or whatever. And uh, because those are the most cliched twists that everybody rushes towards. So to, to pull that off, I would have to it would have to be really clever in in another way. But yeah, there's the idea of like dreams uh, in our chat. Springwell 74 is saying dreams and memory combining in a way. And, th- you know, maybe that's why Kindred looks like their first kiss combined in some way. I, I think we're get- like that is the closer read on what is actually going on here than guessing like it's Harry Osborne or whatever. And I think this issue really puts a kind of pin on that, which is like Kindred says, don't ask who I am, ask what I want. And to me, yes, we did get that issue that says like, what's my name earlier on with the robot master and all of the tri-sentinel robots. But I think we got the name Kindred, but the mystery isn't like, I honestly don't think we're ever going to get a scene where Kindred pulls a mask off and it's a dude's face. I think there's nobody there. I think Kindred is a is an idea. It's a it's a desire. It's a concept. It's not a person. And I think Nick Spencer is saying that to us in this issue. I think that's fair. Of course, like from a superhero comic standpoint, how do you fight a concept? You know, and 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 is that going to be ultimately satisfying? Like, what 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 is what is the what is the obstacle that Spider-Man has to overcome here? And I still don't think that's entirely clear. And Nick Lowe advertised this issue as the issue where Peter and Kendra become face to face for the first time. And I feel like if this was it, I don't even buy it because I don't even know if that's really happened to Peter or if he was experiencing what happened in this issue. So like to me, like who is looking forward to that moment as advertised on Twitter I don't think it delivered on that, but you know, they didn't necessarily promise it in the pages of the comics. I can't really ding Nick Spencer for that. Yeah. And, 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 and again, like not, not to get overly into the, the speculation parade here, but again, like playing, playing with the idea of this is a concept, like, like, I don't know, after all of this buildup, it's gotta be more than just like, Oh, Peter, Peter's afraid to commit or, you know, like as they claim in this issue, like to to keep people close, like it's got to be bigger than that. Because, again, like that's just part of the character. Like, what are we overcoming? What's the challenge? What is the threat? Like we, we are led to believe that Kindred is this existential threat and potentially a very physical threat in terms of what he's done to other people. Again, if it's real or not, I guess is up for debate. It's got to be bigger than just an idea. The way the narrative is being set up, like we 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 are to believe that Kindred is is a major threat to Spider-Man. So what? How is that actually going to be addressed when the time comes? And I I, I still don't see from 
the 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 breadcrumbs that Spencer has been kind of scattering about here, how we're going to get there. And I and, and also what is up with the what's with the lookout, you know? We didn't get it in this issue, but it's been too prevalent throughout for it to be incidental. Maybe I found a clever thing and he's just kind of being cheeky, but you know, I don't think anything is an accident. You know, I, I think we may ding Spencer here and there for issues we don't love, but I don't think he's like haphazard in his writing. You know what I mean? Like not, not everything comes together, but I don't think details like that are just an accident. It could be him being cheeky, but I would suspect more in the line of there being a narrative reason the same way that like kindred here is triggered in Peter's apartment. The minute he starts to talk about proposing to Mary Jane and the ring falls out of his hand. Like if I, if I ever had any doubts about my theory about kindred being the marriage personified or whatever in some way or commitment, like you said, I think this issue really lays it, you know, pretty bare. It's like, the minute he approaches that subject, every, his whole world falls apart and Kindred says, you're dying and so on. So, but again, you know, but again, there's really something to it. But again, it still has to be, there has to be more there, there. Like, I mean, it could be the marriage or the, the soul of the marriage, but like, it needs to be like, for me for, to be sold on this, it needs to be like the soul of the marriage that Mephisto got from One More Day. You know what I mean? Like, 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 and, and, and that the demon in that is seeking revenge for the deal being undone. Uh, to me, that makes sense. Like, if it's just like, oh, it's the marriage, but so, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, what, why, why so serious? You know, <laughs> like, why is it, what, <laughs> why are you, why is it sending centipedes out to kill uh, and, 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 and torturing Peter with these dreams? Like, there's got to be more there, there. So, and I guess we will, but like, as we've been playing from the get go here, I mean, like, this issue, while interesting and intriguing and confusing, like, we're, 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 we're still just kind of, as I said at the beginning, circling the circ- you know the circumference of this story here, and we're like, you know, we we need to get into it, you know, like what, like let's move it forward. I don't feel we've moved forward. Do you feel like we've moved forward in this story? No, we're still not at inciting incident, and we're we're forty four issues in at least if you don't count all the point hus and all that stuff. It's just a lot of stalling, and it's clear they're stalling for fifty. You know, like that, that seems, or 49, that seems pretty obvious to me. I do think that, and we're going to talk about this in a second, based on the Sins Rising prelude issue, that like we are moving closer. That issue to me at least gave me some indication of how that story seems directly tied to the Kindred thing, you know, beyond Kindred resurrecting the Sin Eater. I think thematically it seems on point. One last thing I want to mention before we kind of close out this issue is I thought the art was really exciting for most of the book. There was like some really like slick stuff from Jacinto, the kind of like illusory, hypnotic, tendrily stuff I thought was really great. And it's not that I thought the back of the book was like awful or like the worst thing I've ever seen, but to me it seemed like they must have like rushed to find another artist because of the COVID stuff. And Peter's face is like distended and weird and it just was a really harsh art shift that really stuck out like a sore thumb to me and in a book as premier as Amazing Spider-Man the 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 rotating well of artists here and I don't even need to say it it's just disappointing 
And I wonder why this book is having such a hard time staying consistent. Is Marvel doing similar things with some of its other flagship books right now? Or is this just a Spider-Man phenomenon? It's a Spider-Man phenomenon in my mind, but like, I don't think anything else is like double shipping like this. I mean, I think maybe some of the X titles are, I think maybe X factor or something is coming out pretty regularly or something like that. I don't think anything else is quite meeting this deadline, but it's still like, if you can't meet the deadline, I feel like we have the two artists that were said to be locked on this book and they're maybe making up 50% of the title. So I don't know what's going on. Do we want to do a grade on this or do we want to wait to the very, very end? Let's give a grade on this. I'm going to go with a, a, a C minus on this one. I, I was going between C or C minus and, and usually you're a little more generous than I am. So I, I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll, I'll go to C minus then. So I'm, I'm not becoming the optimist here. My heart was saying C minus, but like you, you actually kind of were selling me a little more on this. So the fact that you were selling me more and then you're at C minus, I'm like, okay, no, my instinct was right. I mean, look, I I think there's a lot of interesting things going on here, but like, I think the way it's laid out is so difficult to follow. And I think maybe if I feel ultimately confident that I got it right, like, cool. Like, you know, some books are fun to piece together. This didn't feel like I was meant to like, piece it together. It meant like I was, it felt like I was meant to kind of like have an aha moment at the end. And I definitely did not have an aha moment at the end. Yeah. Well, you know, transitioning to something that was a little, I mean, still kind of high minded, but I feel a little more structurally sound and, and, and better executed here. Let's talk about this uh, Sins Rising prelude a little bit where we get kind of the the reinvention and the reintroduction of Stan Carter, the Sin Eater. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those like the dot, the dot HU issues or even the GOG issue where it's like Nick Spencer fires on all cylinders when he's doing a character that's not Spider-Man. And, I, and I'm not saying he can't write Spider-Man, but he like seems to be freed up in a way when he's doing these backstory recap issues and he can, he really is great at like reinjecting a lot of like pathos and characterization into these characters. Not that like Stan Carter didn't have one before. He's actually a really interesting character, but seeing it kind of all put here and given a little bit more depth with this wonderful artwork, I, I, I thought this was a real like slam dunk of a like, side story issue. I enjoy this a lot. Now, here's the thing that I'm, I'm going to bring up here what we kind of were talking about uh, independently before we were recording this weekend, which was, again, not to be the, the, the negative person here, but I, I enjoy this. And obviously, you know, for those of you who are uninitiated and, and this comic does explain a lot, although we don't get editorial notes that say as much, you know, the, the, the Sin Eater, Stan Carter came to fame in the death of Gene DeWolf story from Spectacular Spider-Man in the 80s by Peter David and, and uh, Rich Buckler, uh, which is considered probably it's probably the best non-amazing Spider-Man slash amazing fantasy Spider-Man story uh, um, of all time in terms of what a lot of critics and fans say about it. But again, this story was written, I believe, in like 1985, 1986, thereabouts. We don't have any context for really this story in this comic outside of some like flashbacks and and some callbacks with the art. But it's like I, there's a part of me thinking like as cool as this is like we're we're hardcore fans we get it we know who what they're referencing here but like 
you know, if you're someone who just came to this book in the last decade or so, like, who gives a crap about Stan Carter and the Sin Eater? And, like, you're really not getting that kind of context for the historical importance of this character to Spider-Man. And and I feel like that's a that's a major demerit against this entire arc right now. It's just, it's like, you know, again, I'm about to rant a little bit here, but, like, I feel like there's still this part of of Spencer where he where he's creating these stories where like I feel like because he really he read some stories before he started writing Amazing Spider-Man and he really liked them like Craven's Last Hunt and Death of Gene DeWolf now he's like I want to I want to tell my own version of these stories which is like cool and admirable but it's like without the context of like where these stories are from and why they're important and why we're going back I, I feel like it kind of misses a beat a bit that's just kind of like my whole take on this. As much as I enjoyed it, it's like, yeah, but why after f- almost 35 years am I, do I care about Stan Carter? Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I do think that by the end of this issue, the the use of Stan Carter is an interesting one. Like the idea of the issue is that like Stan Carter and the Sin Eater are two different people in the same body, right? And Stan Carter had a victory by like killing the sin eater at the end of the kind of second sin eater story. And so ultimately in this story, we find him in hell kind of reliving his whole history with a few reinventions, like the details about his parents and him being like kind of like adopted and the, the actual sin eater that like lives in the woods and like the kind of mythological sin eater that the character is based off of, which may or may not actually exist. It may just be a part of Stan's mental psych- psychopathy that is creating this creature that he sees in the night. And the ultimate resolution of this story is the idea that Stan was actually absolved because he admitted that he was the Sin Eater and took action and killed himself. And so he actually was virtuous. And so Kindred is freeing his soul to return to earth, to mete out justice for those who aren't willing to absolve themselves of their sins. And Kindred's ultimate goal, he's always saying like, what do I want? And in my mind, Kindred's ultimate goal is he wants Peter Parker to acknowledge some sin from his past, sins past, that he's like buried in his memory. And Kindred is the manifestation of this thing from the past that wants Peter Parker to like, come in direct confrontation with it. And so in my mind, the sin eater is his like war justice warrior to, to take, to, uh, to, to like confront Peter on earth. For some reason, Kindred can't, doesn't seem to be able to himself. I get all that. And I agree with you too, Mark. It's like, if I was just coming to this, I'd be like, what the hell is all this in a way that I think is beyond the typical, here's a villain from the past resurfacing. It's so specific. Is, is that your problem with it? It's so specific? I, I think so. I mean, it's like part of the allure of the original Sin Eater story, you know, for fans at least and for and for the critic, you know, and for the record, Dan, you and I have both talked about this on the show in the past. I, I, I like the death of Gene DeWolf, but like I don't put it on the pedestal that a lot of other Spider-Man fans do. I know you don't either, correct? I don't. I actually prefer the second Sin Eater story. Yeah. I think it's far more interesting. Yeah, but uh, but but part of what has kind of myth, you know, made this story stand out for people is like just how kind of 
real and gritty and dark. Like I always feel like this feels like a Frank Miller Daredevil story, but told with Spider-Man instead. It's tonally just something completely new and different and warish that you just didn't get with Spider-Man. Even even with Spider-Man being a street level character, it was never quite to this level of like you know, Hill Street Blues, you know, shotgunning psychopaths on the street, like what we got here. And, I, you know, again, to your point, like, that's such a specific flavor of Spider-Man stories to be leaning on so heavily with this other story with Kindred, which is like this kind of more demonic being from hell or from another world where, you know, so like it's it's actually a clash when you think about it. Like, you know, on one end, it's like, you know, this was, you know, Stan Carter and the Sin Eater when it came out in the 80s. It was like, well, no, this is something that actually could have happened in New, you know, or probably did happen to a degree in New York City. It's like this, it's like the son of Sam or the Zodiac killer. You know what I mean? Like it's like just the reality of it is what made it so so fraught. And meanwhile, we're talking about like creatures from hell. Why not just pull like Demon Goblin back out or something like that? Like, I just like you say, the specificity of going with the Sin Eater here is it's just kind of kind of mystifies me. I'm like, you know, without without proper context, it just feels so out of out of left field for me. I get that. The kind of idea that like the tone of the original one was about being gritty. And this one has a gritty flair until it suddenly goes into the supernatural and makes it into something a little bit more. I, I get that. I don't know that I would like necessarily knock the writer for that. I understand it being like a, like a, a taste kind of thing because I do think it is handled pretty well. If you're going to merge those two genres of fiction, like I think about like uh, what I like best about the Dan slot run is where he find found elegant ways to kind of like in spider Island, to merge all of Spider-Man's history in one story from every decade. And I thought he handled that like pretty deftly, right? When you've got clones bumping up against Venom, bumping up against, I mean, like every different kind of Spider-Man story. I think that one's probably a bit more broad than this. But yeah, you're right. It is weird to suddenly bring demons into, and like Michael Myers kind of stuff into the down grounded realistic story of the sin eater so I, I get that it worked it worked for me but i get it, it it works in that like this is a good story i guess what i i guess you know and, and as i'm hearing you explain it it this this thought just popped into my head it's kind of like why even use the sin eater or, or why even use stan carter here like why not just create a whole new character you know what I mean? To, to go out and do this, the bidding of Kindred like this. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're calling back to the history of Spider-Man and using it, but it's like it's such a specific history. And again, like I was saying a few minutes ago, the, the, the history that it's rooted in is, is a completely different tone than what the history of the story is. So it's like if you're going to do a story like this, like, you know, have this kind of like angel from hell you know, I mean, hell, I mean, like it could be like the dead Punisher for all like, or it could be like, you know, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> Frank Castle Ghostwriter. But you know what I mean? Like, like, I feel like that's what I would almost expect the way the story is told. But no, it's like, no, no, no. It's the dude in the ski mask who was wielding the shotgun and killing priests and killing uh, judges and stuff like that in, in, in Peter David Spider-Man. And it's like it's such a specific flavor to be going for here. And it, it does kind of diminish it for me a little bit there's a there's a dissidence there that that i can't 
wrap my head around and maybe I'm just being purposely obtuse, but like, you know, like I would rather not see the Sin Eater. It's like, I'd rather you just create a new character and be like, oh, that's a cool character to come up here to be like the next level here for Kindred, but whatever. I mean, you know, now, now we're, we're doing fan fiction and I don't want to get too deep into that. Your point is very well made, Mark. And I, I totally get it. I, I don't have any response to it because it's like, yeah, that makes total sense to me how you would respond that way. Yeah, I, and I don't. I'm not trying to bring this <laughs> conversation to a halt or anything no. like that. It's just like that's that's where that's where I'm kind of stuck with this. But but I mean, what, are there other things about this comic you want to talk about that really that you really dug? I mean, please, I don't I don't want to like be fixated on this. I did want to make mention of my experience reading the comic, which is like I I think it's really neat how you hit a point where you see this kind of, uh, you know, news coverage, this kind of like fanciful, not real news coverage of Gene DeWolf's death. And then the next page, Gene DeWolf is like at a bar with Stan Carter, just like having a drink. And they're talking about some other murder, which is her own murder. And you're like, what the hell is going on? And the, the book continues to play out that way where he like goes to these people's houses after they're dead and you realize eventually by the end that like Stan had been like the two pieces of his mind hadn't like rectified themselves. So like he's still living with the living person, even though the other side of him had just murdered them. And I thought that was really neat. The discovery that Spencer brings you on throughout the book. Like I think that was the aha moment that he was going for in the pre, you know the issue 44 and here the aha moment really like worked for me it was like yeah of course like stan carter is two people in one body uh you know he is this killer that occupies another wavelength and seeing that kind of like converge by the end i thought was really like elegantly done even if it did converge with him in hell getting feasted upon <laughs> by by himself or Whatever. I mean, that's also to say that like this kind of confirms that Kindred is like a demon from hell because he talks about like dying isn't cold. It's actually quite warm. And so to me, that at least confirms this is like a hell character. Uh, not that I don't needed confirming, but yeah, was that your shared experience? Did you ha- come to the aha moment by the end of the issue? Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely did. I mean, you know, structurally, this is a much more well executed story than than 44 was and and yeah like it was a it was a it was a genuine aha of like ah okay now this is all making sense but like in a good way <laughs> not in a wait what what oh okay i get it uh, yeah <laughs> like that was kind of <laughs> like this was like okay no that's clever and i like the structure here and like you said i mean like like spencer really just goes all in on these like character studies. Like, like he, you know, I want to see him write Spider-Man. I want to see him write Peter. I want to see him do like traditional superhero stuff. But like the fact of the matter is like, if there's like ever like an alternate universe where like there could just be like these little sidebars into these character studies of different villains and supporting character members. I want to see Spencer write all of them because he's really good at it. Yeah, and I feel like the art by Guillermo Santa and the colors by Jordi Belair are like really like editorially well placed. I mean, they put like a horror artist on this book and it just like really like is dripping in that tone. And uh, I I loved seeing, you know, it, it, it felt fresh. I opened it up. I didn't know what I was expecting and I got something totally fresh 
uh, out of the book. And, uh, you know, I appreciate them kind of going there, even if it's like a weird place to dip into in a Spider-Man comic. Uh, You got a grade for this or is there anything else you want to mention here? Yeah, no, not really. I thought it was fun. I'm I'm like hovering BB plus for me. I thought like, you know, on its own standards as like a, a like prelude issue, I felt like this finally gave me something to grab onto with the kindred thing. It's like, oh, I know what he wants and I know how he's going to enforce it, which is a sin eater. It's going to put pressure on Spider-Man to face this sin from his past and come to grips with it. And it like thematically that was set up for me and I, I enjoyed it. So I'm going to go B plus just to be, be more fair in this balance out this episode. Yeah. I mean, I'm like on the same edge as you are, Dan. And, and, you know, obviously I have some problematic stuff going on that, that makes it hard, but Hey, you know what? I, I don't want to be known as the, as the, as the negative one. So I'll say B plus as well. <laughs> all right. All right. I, I, all right. I'll take it. Awesome. Great. Well, let's, uh, let's bring this thing home. Mark. Sounds good. Well, everyone, it's time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. This episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Annie Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Busema, and Ray Sumzer. And our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. This episode was originally released on Patreon as a live stream hangout with us back when the comic was first released. So if you'd like to help support our show's continued existence in these reviews while joining us on the live stream, why not head on over to our Patreon and sign on up? Dan, I just can't believe that we still have people here that are listening to this, what, like six weeks later? I mean, come on, what are you doing? Get on Patreon, listen to this in real time, do it right now, right? Yeah, these are exciting issues, even if like we don't love all of them. Like You're going to want to be with us when we react to issue 49 and 50 in a few weeks or months or whenever that ultimately comes. Uh, so, you know, like get on, get on board and, and join us for that big surprise. So Mark, until Kindred brings back Max Dillon from the dead, what's our motto? That, that joke feels like it was brought back from the dead, Dan. I love it. Our motto, of course, is with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't, don't miss the next